We're in this series called Multiply. This is the fifth week, but really all it is is a series through the book of Acts, and specifically this multiply part is what we're calling Acts chapter 8 and 9. As we walk through Acts chapter 8 and 9 in the New Testament, we're calling this section Multiply. We've been talking about that each week. If you weren't here last week, you should go back, go to our Facebook page, watch, um, watch the message from last week as Pastor Joel preached about the story of Paul, and today we're going to be finishing up that story. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bible and you're finding your way there, we're going to start in verse 15 in just a minute. How many of you are NBA fans? Like two? No wonder the NBA is dying. I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So, so here's the thing. Did anybody know the NBA Finals is happening right now? Wow, it really is. Yeah. Um, so the Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns are playing. There was one Bucks fan back there in the back. Anybody know the Bucks are ahead three to two right now in the series based on last night's game? Listen, the sermon today is not on basketball, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I bring that up because there's some debate because Friday, do you know what movie came out that's related to basketball this past Friday? Space Jam, the new Space Jam. Everybody know when the old one came out? 1996, yes, before some of you were born. Um, so, so here's the thing. It has renewed the debate over who the greatest NBA basketball player of all time is. Some people say it was LeBron James. Some people say it was Michael Jordan. What do you say? Larry Bird. What? Okay. So, all right. So I'm not really going to answer that question for you, but I do want to talk about LeBron James for just a minute. This is not an, I'm not advocating for him being the greatest. I really think it probably was Michael Jordan. But here's the deal. LeBron James, this guy right here, this is only, not only did a movie come out with him in it on Friday, but he, he is, he was, he's not in the finals right now. He, his team is not playing. The Lakers are not in the NBA finals right now. But he has been, this is only the second time in the last 11 years that he's not been in the finals. Like, that's pretty remarkable. In fact, he led the Miami Heat to the finals four years in a row, and then they traded him he went back to the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he led them to the finals four years in a row. And then last year, the Lakers were there. So, so he, is, he is a pretty phenomenal basketball player. Now, here's the thing. I remember when he went from the Miami Heat, after four years, incredible, to back to Cleveland. And I remember the game he was playing for the Cavaliers against the Heat that next year. And I remember, like, it was almost, it was almost like he was a traitor. Like, the heat was like, he's left us. He's a traitor. He's evil. And it was like the Cleveland Cavaliers were like, yes, God has restored our wonder. You know, you know they were like, we're so glad he's back in Cleveland. And they, they just dominated. But here's the thing. He switched sides. He switched teams. And today, we're not talking about LeBron James, but we're talking about somebody we started, about talking, we started talking about last week. His name is Saul. And he's arguably, outside of Jesus, the most prominent figure in the New Testament. Right? In fact, what he did in the life of the New Testament church, in the church of Jesus, in planting churches and starting churches, he's arguably the greatest missionary and church planter of all time. And this guy is interesting it, you, what you saw last week, if you were here, was he goes from the, being the greatest antagonist of Jesus 
to Jesus' greatest ambassador. Like he switches teams, he switches sides completely, and it, it's, it's crazy, and nobody gets it, and you're going to see that in the story today. You see, one, time, one day, Paul was traveling to the city of Damascus in Syria, and this is what we talked about last week, and he was headed there because he hated Christians. He hated people who said they followed Jesus. He saw them as antithetical to everything he believed. He was going to shut down their movement. He passionately had a personal vendetta against anyone who said they were Christian and Jesus himself. And so he was going to shut down their movement. He killed Christians several weeks ago. We said he was standing there at the stoning of Stephen, which was a very pivotal moment in the church's history. In fact, it changed everything at that point. The church began to spread out and multiply because of Stephen's stoning. Well, Saul, and I'm going to mess this up today because I'm going to call him Paul throughout the whole thing. Same guy, Saul, Paul. Um, Saul was standing there that day when Stephen was stoned because he was the ringleader of it. He was the guy that either authorized or was leading the stoning of Stephen. He hated Christians. But you may already know this, but last week we said that on the road to Damascus that day, he saw a bright light. And he fell down on his face and he heard the voice of Jesus. And that day he gave his heart and his life to Jesus and Jesus began to change him. He could no longer deny that Jesus was who he says he was. He was the son of God. And his heart and his life began to change. And then what happened with the rest of the story is he went on to start churches in modern day Syria and Turkey and Lebanon and Greece and Italy. And those churches have multiplied, and you and I are here today, probably because of what happened in Paul's life. He wrote most of the books or letters of our New Testament. He wasn't always that way. He changed from being an antagonist to an ambassador. After he encountered Jesus, Saul went on to Damascus and he stayed there for a while. And God sent a Christian man, we saw this last week, named Ananias, to invest in him, to encourage him, and to help him. And last week we ended with these verses. So we're Acts 9, 15, and this is what it says. We read these at the end of the um, message last week. Verse 15 of chapter 9 says, But the Lord said to him, talking to Ananias, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Jesus says, Ananias, I know this looks scary. I know you don't believe it right now because this guy used to be the greatest opponent to Christians. He killed Christians like you, Ananias. But I want you to go and I want you to love him and I want you to teach him and I want you to encourage him because he's my chosen vessel that is going to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to kings, and to people you never thought were included and invited. And Ananias had to feel a little bit apprehensive about this. But look, look what verse 16 says. And this is an interesting part because God says to Ananias this, I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. Isn't that interesting that he says to Ananias, Ananias, I'm going to use this guy Saul. He's going to be a great instrument. Great things are going to happen through Saul. But I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. Jesus says. Now, pause there for just a second. 
If I was Ananias, I probably would have argued back with God. You're just learning a little bit of my personality. I would have said, God, I'm not sure that's the best way to make your name great for you to make this guy suffer. Like, is that the greatest representation of who you are is to make this guy suffer? Show him how much he must suffer. Because I, you and I think suffering is really bad, right? I mean, come on, let's just be honest. We think pain and suffering is not so good. But I just point that out to ask you this question. I just want you to ponder this question for a minute. What if your pain can produce way more than your prosperity or your privilege ever could? Like, I don't understand all the ways of God, and I don't understand exactly why God chose for Saul to suffer and be imprisoned and be rejected and be tortured for most of his ministry. But he did. And he chose to allow that. He chose to do that. What if, you guys, what if more transformation, more humility, more character, more grace, more impact, more dependence on God, more room for God's power, more need for God, more convincing power of the gospel in people's lives will come from the way you walk through sacrifice and suffering instead of the way you experience success and security. Do you hear me? You know, what I've learned in my life is it seems to be more convincing that my faith is in Jesus the way I walk through suffering than the way I walk through success. It depends on who name, whose name matters most. You see, God tells Ananias, I'm going to do this for my name. Not Paul's name, not your name, Ananias, not for anybody else's name, but for my name. So I guess it depends on who our life is for. Because if it's for my name, then prosperity and privilege and success and satisfaction and security are what I want. But if it's for Jesus' name, it may not be. Look at verse 17. This is great. Ananias obeys the Lord. And it says in verse 17, Ananias went and he entered the house. As scared as he was, as doubtful as he may have been, as apprehensive as he was, he goes. And look, he places his hand on Saul and he says, Brother Saul. Isn't that interesting? The guy who has hated him and anybody like him, Ananias calls him a brother. Because God's already told him, he now belongs to me. He is now adopted into my family, and he's your brother in Christ. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, at once something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. God's immediately starting to change things in his life. He says, then he got up and was baptized. Isn't that interesting? One of the first things that he does is publicly express his faith in Jesus by being baptized. Who baptized him? Was it Ananias? Was it another brother or sister in Christ? I don't know. Somebody baptized him in that moment as a first step of saying, you, this is a public affirmation of your inward commitment to follow Jesus as you're going to be baptized like Jesus was and like Jesus commands for his disciples to do. Look at verse 19. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now look at this. I want you to pay careful attention to this. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. 
How much time? I'm not sure. But I researched it this past week, and scholars say, and I've been curious about this before, he went from Damascus, he was there for a long time. There's, there's some, some, some reason to, to know that he went to Arabia for a time, and then he went back to Damascus, he tells us in Galatians later on. If scholars are right, it's estimated that he could have spent up to three years in Damascus. Up to three years in Damascus and some other places like Arabia. But, but the reason I point that out is, listen, he stays with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Why? Because being with other followers of Jesus is critical to your growth as a disciple of Jesus. Listen, there was a time in my life, and I don't know if this is you, but there was a time in my life that I thought that I could follow Jesus all by myself. I didn't need the church because the church was messed up. I had met many hypocrites who called themselves Christians and didn't really live it out in their life. And I'm like, I don't need them. I don't need the church. I don't need anybody else. I've got my Bible. I can do this relationship with Jesus all by myself. Listen, that's a lie from the enemy. Because I promise you this. You cannot and will not really grow as a follower of Jesus without other followers of Jesus encouraging you, surrounding you, holding you accountable, praying with you, being with you. It says Paul was with the disciples for some time. We weren't meant to follow Jesus alone. Church, one of the things that I think is wrong with the church today is it's a spectator sport. You come and you, you sit and you watch me and you listen and you leave. And oftentimes people aren't in community like a missional community or in a huddle. And I promise you, you won't really grow that way. It's why we are so adamant about the fact that you need to be in community with other people. Growing as a follower of Jesus. Yes, it's not always convenient. Yes, it takes commitment. My wife and I um, often say that when we look back on our journey... Um, with Jesus, that some of the most formative years have, have been uh, were the time early on in our life when we were teenagers in middle school and in high school, and we were in the student ministry or the youth ministry in our church. And we look back and go, we would be totally different people on a totally different path if my parents hadn't said, you're going to go to student ministry. <laughs> and there were days, listen, there were days as a teenager that I was like, I would say yes, and then when I got to drive, I would choose to go somewhere else. Now, my parents still don't know, so I hope they're not watching this live stream. But there were, there were days that I, that I didn't want to do that. But my parents knew the value of being in Christian community, being around other followers of Jesus. And I'll tell you that it was so impactful on me, and I didn't even realize how much it was impacting me. When I went off to college at Charleston as a 17-year-old, I was desperate to, to figure out how to have a student ministry around me. But I had graduated from student ministry. So at College of Charleston, the campus ministries that were on campus were Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, and BCM, Baptist Collegiate Ministries. And, and I went to those Tuesday nights and Friday nights. And, and I, didn't, I started plugging in and getting to know people. My, my roommates the next year came from that group of people. They got me involved in a church, Citadel Square Baptist Church, downtown Charleston for the next three years of college. I was in that college ministry. I sang in a group like if I had not been intentional about getting into a community of Christ followers, I got in a Bible study that after my sophomore year of college is the reason that I think 
through those men that we were surrounded in that room on campus studying God's word together is when God spoke to me and said, I want you to lay down what you want to do and I want to use you for the rest of your life. I'm just telling you, when I look at my life, the small groups I've been in, the huddles I've been in, the missional communities I've been in have made me a better dad, a better husband, a better man, a better follower of Jesus. And it's still happening to this day when I go to huddle. Is it always convenient? No. When I go to missional community, when we have to clean up our house and say, all right, it's missional community night. Some days I, I'm just like, please, not today. And then when everybody leaves, I go, God knows I need this. I'm just saying you need followers of Jesus around you. Don't forsake that. Verse 20. Immediately, so while Paul was in Damascus, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Listen to what Paul started doing. He went from, from declaring he's a liar, he's an imposter, like he's a false prophet, to immediately when he began to worship and follow Jesus, began to proclaim he really is who he said he was. He really is God's Son. He really is the Messiah. Immediately, he began to share about his faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for all those called, who called on, his name, on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? So they say, Isn't this the guy that was in Jerusalem killing Christians? And hasn't he come here pretending and tricking us that he's now a follower of Jesus so that we will do it, and then he'll drag us off to prison or kill us? Do you hear what they're saying? They're doubtful. They see that he's saying something completely different. They see that something has drastically changed in his life, but they don't know if they can believe it yet. They're like, I I'm not sure if this can really be true. But Paul's life and Paul's words begin to convince people See, here's what's happening. They're seeing, they're hearing a different message and seeing a different guy than they saw earlier. I just want to say this to you. Jesus changes everything. All right, I need you to know this. Paul's life from this point forward is drastically different for the rest of his life. Different outlook, different values, different character, different message, different way he spends his money, his time, his life. Listen, when Jesus touches you, when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus begins to change everything about who you are. Now, let me say this. Some people think that you have to be the one to change yourself when you come to Jesus. That is not true. Listen, you don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. In fact, the gospel is exactly the opposite. You can't save yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You're a broken mess. God has to do that through Jesus Christ. It's why he died for you. But you know, also sometimes people think that if I begin to trust and follow Jesus, that I'll stop have, having to hang out with with the friends I used to hang out with, I have to stop cussing and drinking and start acting right and being nice to everybody. Have you ever, have you ever thought that before? Let's be honest. Listen, I have, I have news for you. You don't have to change yourself when you follow Jesus. The Bible says that 
God's spirit begins to work on the inside of you and change your heart and your mind and your desires. And I, I will be honest, yes, things will change if you follow Jesus. But he's less concerned with the exterior things than he is with your heart and your mind. He wants to change your heart. And if you follow him, he will change you. The way you treat your spouse or your kids. The way you spend your money and your time. The way you see and do your work, your job. The way you see other people. Everything about you will begin to change. And the people around you will be astounded. And they'll say, what has happened to this guy? And listen, here's the thing. Just like with Saul. They may doubt at first. They may wonder, are you just, is this just self-help? Are you just trying to be good? Well, listen, as Jesus' power and presence in your life begins to manifest itself, eventually they'll be convinced something in this person has changed. Because Jesus changes people. All right, look at verse, look at verse 22. The Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that he that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, what's interesting here is they go from astounded to now some of the Jews in Jerusalem are confounded. They're perplexed and they're maybe even a little bit angry that he continues to say Jesus is the Messiah. They had a predetermined conclusion about Jesus. They had, they had agreed with the fact that Jesus must be an imposter. He must not be really the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They had preconceived thoughts. And so every time Paul would say Jesus really is the Messiah, he really is the Son of God, they were confounded by that because they didn't want that to be true according to their predetermined conclusion. You see, here's, here's what you need to know. Jesus does change people, and Jesus can change people drastically, but Jesus is offensive to some people. Are you with me? Jesus is offensive to some people. Why? Well, it could be because they've seen, like I said, they've seen Christians who misrepresent Jesus and maybe are hypocrites. And maybe they're offended by it. But you know what I believe the biggest reason people are offended by Jesus? I, I, I don't think... See, saying yes to Jesus, when I turn my life over to Jesus, when, some, when I say that you need to give your life to Jesus... Saying yes to Jesus means admitting that you're broken and sinful and you need a Savior and that you're helpless to save yourself. You see, when, I, when people are offended by Jesus, I don't really think they're offended by Jesus. I, I think they're offended by the notion that they need Jesus. Do you hear me? I think they're offended by the notion that they're so messed up that they need a Savior. Some people are offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it didn't silence Paul. Saul, he kept saying, you need him. Look at verse 23. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. They were angry. They, they conspired to kill him. Look at verse 24. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. They were passionately wanting to shut this guy up. Verse 25, But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. 
Now, you already probably know this, but Saul would later go on to most of the rest of his life as he preached and talked about Jesus, he would suffer loss. He would suffer rejection, beating, imprisonment, torture, and even death for Jesus. And later on, Paul would write, I consider it all loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. You see, Paul was willing to suffer for the rest of his life, and he did for a lot of it. Just like Jesus promised would happen. But it leads me to remind you of this. That yes, Jesus changes lives. And yes, Jesus is offensive to some. But you also need to know this. Jesus can save you, but Jesus is not safe. You see, I think this is a problem that is often, often exists in our world today. Is that when you follow Jesus, somehow you'll be safe and protected from harm. I'm going to tell you that's a lie. And if that's news, I mean, that might be heavy. How many of you, um, how many of you either read or saw the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? So, um, so there's a character, the lion is Aslan, right? And Aslan is a representation of God or, or Jesus himself. And, and at one point in the story, right, the beaver, Mr. Beaver, is, is trying to um, explain that Aslan is a lion. He's the lion, the great lion, he says. And Susan replies, oh, like, I thought he was a man. And then she asks this question, is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen, I need you to know something today. Whether you've not chosen to follow Jesus yet, or you have chosen to believe and follow him, you need to know something. Jesus is not safe in terms of your earthly privilege, and prosperity, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And that may be news to you. You see, Saul goes here from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. He was once on the offensive killing Christians, and now they're chasing him to kill him after he chooses to believe and follow Jesus. Things don't get better in an earthly sense. They get harder. He goes from the hunter to being the hunted. When somebody believes in Jesus, it is not a surprise to me when life gets a little bit hard. It's not something that I wish for, but oftentimes when you follow Jesus, you need to understand this. You have a target on your back. There is an enemy who does not like that, and he seeks to discourage and disrupt you and derail you. And in the midst of that, your Heavenly Father wants to use it to stretch you and teach you and grow you. But I promise you this, when you believe and follow Jesus, your faith will be tested. When you grow in your relationship with Jesus, your faith will be tested. But remember the song we sang earlier? But you can trust and know this, that our God 
is good and he can use anything for your good and his glory. Hard does not mean bad when you're a follower of Jesus. Verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You see that? Just like the people in Damascus. He gets there and all the, the brothers, the, the followers of Jesus, they're afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Like it's going to take them time to be convinced that he really has been changed, that he's really different now. Look at verse 27, but there's one guy, Barnabas. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Listen, I wasn't even planning to say this, but I just want to say this. Everybody needs a Barnabas at some time in their life to step in when everybody else doubts, when everybody else isn't sure what's going on in you, and somebody steps in and says, hey, you're going to make it. God's with you. I see it. You can trust him. Everybody needs that at some time. I'm so thankful that Barnabas stepped into Paul's life. Later, you're going to see Barnabas is going to join Paul, and they're going to go on a missionary journey and plant churches together. Everybody needs a Barnabas. Sometimes when life is hard, when everybody else seems against you, but that one follower of Jesus says, hey, I'm with you. But here's the flip side of that. There are people around you right now that need you to be a Barnabas. They need you to step in and say something. They need you to be an encourager. They need you to say, I see what God's doing in you. I know he's going to finish what he started. Let's finish this. It says in verse 28, Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. What's new? In verse 30, when the brothers found out they were trying to kill him, look what they did. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. <laughs> this is kind of funny to me. I don't know if they sent him off to Tarsus. Did you know Tarsus was the hometown where he grew up? It's probably where his parents lived. And they took him and they found out people were trying to kill him. And man, that seemed dangerous. So they took him and they put him on a boat and they sent him off to Tarsus. Why? I don't know. Maybe it was intended for his safety. Maybe it was for their own safety. I'm not really sure. But again, I just want you to think about this for a second. Do you know how long, how, how long did I tell you Saul was in Damascus? About three years? Guess how long he's in Tarsus, scholars estimate. About 10 years. Before Paul ever goes on his first missionary journey, ever plants his first church, ever writes letters that we read in the New Testament, there's about 13 or 14 years, he tells us in Galatians, 14 years had passed. That's a long time. Like Jesus had saved Paul and changed him and he had boldness to proclaim the gospel. Why does God make him wait for 13 years? I don't know. 
I don't know what God was doing in those 13 years. I have no idea. Like we don't see much of anything about the, that time period. He's in Tarsus. Ten years pass and he's in his hometown. Listen, I point that out to say this to you. Maybe you're in a stage of life right now where you feel like you're in between. Maybe you feel like you're waiting on something. Maybe, maybe right now in your life, it's hard to see what God is doing or understand what God is doing. Maybe things haven't worked out at this stage of your life like you planned them to be. Maybe like Saul, you've made plenty of mistakes. I mean, look at this guy. This guy killed people for the name of Jesus. I mean, he had some major regrets. He had a past. And maybe in this time in your life, you're, you're kind of paralyzed by that. Listen, I don't know what happened in that time period with Paul exactly, but I know this. God was not finished with his story. You and I will read the rest of the New Testament and see God was not done yet. And maybe you're here this morning to hear me say to you, God is not finished with you yet. I don't know what season you're walking through, but God's not done. What if the best is yet to come? And what if right now is just preparation for that? Later on, many years later, Paul would sit in a prison cell and he would write a letter to Christians in Philippi and he would say this. It's one of the most encouraging words in the New Testament. Paul wrote to them and said, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm sure of this. That if you've chosen to believe and follow Jesus, if you choose today to believe and follow Jesus, the best is yet to come. God is not finished. Seek Him with all your heart. Spend time with Him every single day. Discover that He is enough for you. That even when all earthly circumstances fall away, that your God is good. And then he can work everything together for your good and his glory. Let him change your heart and your mind. Commit yourself to being in community with other believers. Get into a missional community this fall. Get into a huddle with other people. Come see me if you need help with that. You need it desperately. And if you do this, the best is yet to come for you as you follow Jesus. He will finish what he starts. Will you pray with me?